I'm Madalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. Attica Locke is one of those rare people who has managed to find a successful writing career in screenwriting and book writing. You may know the hit Fox TV show Empire, of which she was a producer and screenwriter for several seasons. If you're a book person, you probably know her from her acclaimed novels, Blackwater Rising, The Cutting Season, and Pleasantville. I'm delighted to say she's back with a new novel, Bluebird, Bluebird. And Attica Locke joins me now from Los Angeles, California. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's really great to talk to you. Um, now, your hero in this book is a Texas Ranger, uh, Darren Matthews, a rarity in that he's a Black Ranger. He's educated, went to law school in Chicago, and was poised to pursue a career in the law but he is drawn back to his home state to become a law enforcement officer, in fact, a ranger. Um, tell us about the status of rangers in Texas and their pull for Darren. Um, well, the rangers are, are like unlike any other law enforcement agency, I think, in the country. The closest that they match is like the U.S. Marshals, but this is, of course, for a single state. There are only, I believe, like 150 or 152 of them. And in order for there to be more rangers, there the the state legislature has to approve it. So it's a very rarefied um, law enforcement agency. And I think that for Darren, um, the way that it's presented in the book is that, like you said, he was on this path to become a criminal defense attorney. And then Jasper, Texas happened. I don't know how many people remember in nineteen. Yeah, why don't you remind us about Jasper? In 1998, there was the dragging death of James Byrd and by uh, three members of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. And the way that Darren talks about it, it happened not far from where he was raised, is that he says, that was my 9-11. That was the moment he realized he needed to serve in a different way. That there was, there's, there's be, being a defense attorney, there's also boots on the ground. And he decided to follow in, in the footsteps of one of his uncles, uh, who was the first black ranger in Texas. So it's a really elite group and not many uh, ranges of color. There are not. I mean, there there are um, there are there are black and Latino um, rangers. But given the numbers, no, there are not that many. And there are very few women. Mm -hmm. um, now, Darren starts looking into a murder case. Uh, the body of a black man from Chicago is found in the small town of Locke followed a few days later by the body of a white local woman. So we know we're in for a taut thriller that isn't just about these murders, but about race in Texas. Mm -hmm. race, race and racial tensions have always been a feature of your work, but how has the last few years influenced your writing about these topics? And how much is of that is in this book? Um, how do I want to put it? Because this book, first of all, it, it feels very important to say that this book was written before Donald Trump was elected. And, and I say that because the morning after the election, with all of my many feelings, one of them was the realization that my book had changed overnight, even though I had not changed a word. Mm -hmm. But its, its urgency had suddenly become so much more present. Um, and even though, and I guess I felt these things were coming in the book, because the book definitely, you're talking about the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas, you're talking about white nationalism, and and the fear of that being on the rise and, and this, that, and the other. I think, I think where it is, um, where this is in line with how I write about race in general is that I always try to scratch beneath the surface. I think with, um, 
and I always look for the psychological component of, of being both a, a victim of racism and in this book in particular, the psychological component of racist in general, um, where, where people are coming from. And I think that has been a through line to my work to not just stay in archetypal, um, you know, black hats and white hats, but to really dig into the psychology of um, separation and what makes us feel so separate from one another. And I think one thing that I was really struck by um, that, you know, Darren Matthews, despite the benefits of his educational status, status of successful uncles who essentially brought him up, he stills, he's still brought up being warned, you know, for men like us, a pair of baggy pants or a shirt till hanging out was walking bubble cause. And you write, uh, his uncles understood how easily a colored man's general comportment could turn into a matter of life and death. Darren had always wanted to believe theirs was the last generation to have to live that way, that change might trickle down from the White House, when in fact, the opposite had proven true. In the wake of Obama, America had told on itself. Tell me about that observation. Well, I think that what happened when Barack Obama was elected, when this incredibly intelligent, graceful gentleman who is thoughtful, well-read, well-written, was elected and was treated um, as if he were not even an American citizen. His otherness was so huge that he just did not even belong to the country in general. The racism that bubbled up in the wake of his election became a thing that America could no longer politely pretend didn't exist. It, it, it really is as if a sickness rose up to the surface of to the surface, I, I I think I've called it before, it's like a boil coming up on the skin. Mm -hmm. It's now a thing that nobody can ignore anymore. And and then after he's gone now, we have seen this thing is cancerous and festering over. I could take this nasty metaphor to, to the nth degree. Yeah. We are we are we are sick and the sickness is in the White House. It's it's very um clear um that that we have a, a deep, deep um, problem around race still. And, you know, to me, you, you said you didn't, your book changed without you having to rewrite anything. Um, you know, it does seem uh, very prescient. Um, you know, he's drawn into this case uh, and he's on his own in this small town block, um, which is inhabited by blacks who've lived there for generations next to whites. Mm -hmm. But but it's also an area infiltrated by the Aryan Brotherhood. Now, reading this in the fall of 2017, um, it seems to me almost as if you, because you wrote this some time ago, you were seeing a strain in our race relations that maybe the country wasn't paying attention to. Uh, I mean, I, I wish I could make myself sound so <laughs> wise. The truth of the matter is, I did research and the truth of the matter is, is that the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas has been around, has been active, and the Texas Rangers have, with the federal government, tried to deal with them. I think what's different now is that you don't have to dig in the research to find the, this ideology. You don't have to dig in the research to find these white nationalist groups. They are walking in the middle of the street with tiki torches and polo shirts. That's what's really different. But but the 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 this thing this kind of thinking has been present, you know, for 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 a long time. I think that what Donald Trump has done is given permission to wear your hatred proudly. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, I mean, I think that people will be very struck by the things that you raise in the book. Um, and one thing I'm really curious about is, I don't want to give too much away, um, but in the course of finding out about these murder victims and what happened, you reveal, you know, decades of an uneasy coexistence between blacks mm -hmm. and between blacks and whites in rural East Texas. And your, mm -hmm. previ your previous novels have mostly featured your hometown of Houston and the racial uh, issues there. But so why, why did you choose to write about rural Texas now? Um, a couple of things. One, um, I have to say that, that this has been, rural East Texas is never really left me, even though it hadn't shown up in my work yet. My entire family, on my mother's side and my dad's side are from small towns along Highway 59 in East Texas. So I grew up in these in the red dirt of East Texas. I grew up going up and down this highway um, that is going to be the through line of this book series. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, this has always been in me, but I have to say at some point in the middle of the second, was it, yeah, the second season of Empire, I remember having this profound sense of wanting to go home as much um, as much fun, Empire is, is just literally one of the most fun things I've ever done in my entire life. It was just this absolute blessing of joy that showed up in my life and I had so much fun, but in the middle of hip hop, in the middle of, you know, all this kind of stuff that that's not really the world that I come from, I felt this overwhelming sense of wanting to go home. And I both meant I miss books, but mm -hmm. I meant I wanna go home to Texas. And so that's kind of where this kind of all came about is just a kind of longing for um, for East Texas from afar. It's interesting. I don't know. I did not know about the long history of um, the black population in e rural East Texas. And I think that might be new to many people that they have been there for generations yes. and generations. Yes. Um, you're shedding light on something that I think will really be new for people. I think it will. And, and that may be the thing that I'm honestly most proud of about this book beyond, um, beyond any big, large political things that it says. It is a love letter to black Texans and it's a love letter to my ancestors. In fact, the book's dedication is just a list of all of as far back as I could go, a list of all of um, the surnames, the men and women um, who kind of came before me. My family is the opposite story of the great migration. The, you know, many people are familiar that you know, after emancipation and certainly deeply into the 20th century, millions of black folks fleeing the South, getting out of the Jim Crow um, mm -hmm. South, out of the fields in order to find work and factories, in order to find just a better life um, in terms of jobs and everything up North and away from racism. My family is defined by the fact that we stayed. And part of that is a class thing. There's no way to pretend as if we were not advantaged, we owned land. So the idea that we would up and leave land that we owned in order to start over new in, in some urban you know, maze was ridiculous. We were Texans, we were of the land, we were agrarian people. Um, and we made a decision that kind of, you can, you can, this is the theme of the book, you know, all over the book, you can, you can go. Nobody would judge you if you left and said, fuck this place. Excuse my language. I hope the podcast allowed for that. <laughs> but you could go, but you can also stay. 
and that there is the, the flip side of stand your ground. We have heard that term when we, when we think of the murder of Trayvon Martin, when we think of awful human beings like George Zimmerman. But the flip of stand your ground is, you know what? I built this place and I'm not going anywhere. And I think that that in the book, I'm using Texas as a stand-in also for America, that for black folks and anybody, for black folks, for gay folks, for for Native American folks, guess what? We are we are America too. This make America great again. We're already great. We're already here. And you don't get to define it. There is a sense for me of wanting to say that, yes, the white uh, nationalists exist. Yes, Trump is stirring up all kinds of hate. But guess what? You don't get to define this place. And I think that's what I was trying to say about Texas, certainly. But I also mean that the worst of American impulses is not the whole of what this country is. And you know you you talk so passionately about being drawn to home, and it's clear that Darren Matthews too is drawn to home, the place yes. where ge generations of his family have lived. But he's still made to feel that he might not belong, um, and he's driving to this small town, village, hamlet, lock, and he notes, without the badge, because he was on leave, um, without the badge, he was just a black man traveling the highway alone. I felt really sad reading that line. Oh. Um, I just love him and I feel that he is a mirror for my own ambivalence about where I'm from. Um, I love Texas so much, uh, but I do not live there. Let's be clear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm right now looking out of a window in sunny California. Uh, I don't choose to live there and yet it is so in my body and my blood. I just adore the place. And I think that Darren, you see in a lot of instances in the book, feels a kind of ambivalence about where he's from and an ambivalence about that badge, about where and when um, it's actually helpful and when it doesn't help. And right. when, when even he as a law enforcement officer can afford to follow the rules or when he may need, may need to break the rules to reach for a higher moral, um, a moral victory. Yeah, and it was very interesting that you lay that out because, you know, as you say, as you write, he got it confused sometimes. Yes. Which side of the law he belonged. Um, you know, something that I doubt any white Texas Ranger uh, would have to go through in thinking about doing their work. Yes. Um, now, I have to ask you about the process of your writing because you are good at both screenwriting and novels. Um, what are the differences in the processes and what kinds of stories do each medium allow you to tell? Um, well, they're they could not be any more different. Um, and certainly writing for television could not be more different than, than writing a novel because everything in TV is by committee. And I don't mean just the fact that there are maybe 10 writers in a, in a writer's room and we're making up story by committee. But then when you get, get on set, you're making it by committee with the actors, with the set designer, with the director of photography. At every step of the way, we are collaborative, collaboratively creating the story. Whereas obviously with the novel, it's just me and my own head. Uh -huh. um, and there's pleasure in both. There is, there is an extreme pleasure of being a part of a group and watching something come together because so many little parts that, that people are playing all come together to make a whole. 
that is delightful to watch and fun. And it's it's just it's there's camaraderie and 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 just you feel a sense of, of social togetherness. But I also am one of these um highly gregarious introverts. I love being around people, but I love being alone. So it's also like nice for me to just wrestle with with story by myself. Right. Um, so I, I hope that I hope that's answered the question. But yeah, I mean, I read that um, one of the things I was curious about. I read that in your early experience after graduating in screenwriting and directing, that in trying to tell stories about race, nobody was interested in those stories, and that's one of the reasons you you actually yes, ended up writing correct. a novel. Um, it, it, that is it, correct. And what the beauty of it is, is that um, things are changing on the um, on the film and TV side. That That's wonderful. But my life as a novelist truly was birthed because I just felt like I could not be myself in that medium. I was not getting there was no reception for me and the types of stories that I wanted to tell. And so I went to novels and they really truly gave me my voice that that can't be taken away now and and it's 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 it was a wonderful gift that i gave myself to um it cost me because I, bar I borrowed money on my house in uh -huh. order to write my first book so it cost i went into debt over it but i will never never regret giving myself the space and time to find my voice well, it was not just a gift to yourself, but a gift to the readers, too. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And now, go, just going back to Bluebird, Bluebird, the book ends with a cliffhanger. So we know there'll be another Darren Matthews book. Uh, yes. And I, I read that you recently went down to do some research in East Texas, and you were nervous to be alone. So your father came with you, yes. and he had a gun. Uh, I made him get story? a gun. I Tell made him that. <laughs> well, the the next book, uh, and I don't want to give a lot away, but it takes place um, near Caddo Lake in um, East East Texas, so east, and that Caddo Lake is so big and so on the border that it it straddles Louisiana and Texas. You could get on a boat in Texas and and go to Louisiana in on this lake, and there wow. are cabins all around, and it is literally the quintessential. Actually, I don't think you've ever seen anything like it. I was going to say the quintessential swamp kind of look, but I've never seen anything like Caddo Lake. Just the cypress trees and the, it's like a forest flooded. And you, you it's just crazy. It's, it's um, atmospheric and beautiful, but creepy. And we were, I was going to stay in a cabin. I was like, there's no way I'm staying out here by myself. And so my dad and I met in Marshall, Texas, where he grew up. And we mm -hmm. met at my grandmother's house. And I said, Daddy, did you bring a gun? He said, no, but your grandmother has a pistol. So we, we took we took my grandmother's pistol because it made me feel more comfortable, frankly, even though I don't even like guns, but I just I was uncomfortable being out there in the middle of nowhere. And what was what was so amazing to me about the trip is that when we would go places and I'm remembering that to pay for our little bed and breakfast, you get to go pay cash at a bait and tackle shop. Mm -hmm. And we went when we went to the bait and tackle shop, the guy, the white man who was uh, running the shop just on the surface looked very uh, redneckish. It looked like this is the kind of white guy who does not want to talk to me. And so I got very, very tense. But my father's way of dealing with situations like that is say, how you doing, man? I like the boots you're wearing. Good morning. How you doing? Like he, he's on, he's so, um, engaging and it is honestly just his personality but he's also giving a quick signal to let the other person know i got nothing against you right and and to find out if the other person has anything against him and it taught me to quit judging people by the way that they look 
even in Texas, even with the boots and the overalls and the, this and the that, that the way that people were reacting to my father and I was, it didn't match what, what the stereotype is. And it just, it just reminds me of how fudging complicated. See, I tried to not curse that time. <laughs> it, it reminds me of how incredibly complicated race in the South is that the truth of the matter is that black and white folks have been living up and against each other for hundreds of years. And that there is a familial thing that's going on. Yes, there's the Aryan Brotherhood. Yes, James Byrd was drugged to death. But on any given Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there are also black and white folks living up against each other who are friendly and where there is love and, and, and fellowship. It's mm -hmm. very complicated. Well, it certainly is complicated and uh, that you reveal that in Bluebird, Bluebird. And it sounds like your research for the next book um, is going to be uh, lead to something even more gripping than the first book. Hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I for one can't wait until the next Darren Matthews installment, but the current and new first installment is called Bluebird, Bluebird. You can read about this and other great books by women authors at 52 weeks, 52 books, 52 women.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Attica Locke, thank you so much for joining me. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. For me too.